Amen. Thank you, Jacob. From beginning to end, my life's in your hands. Great is your faithfulness. What a great song to sing in the week before Thanksgiving and a reminder of all the blessings God has poured out on us and continues to do as we are thankful people. Good to be with you this morning. Kurt Parker, if you've not been with us, this is uh, the time that we spend uh, reading through the Word of God, worshiping Him in that way, and so we're going to do that. And we are in a continued study, verse by verse, through the pastoral epistles. We were able to introduce our next uh, topic really in this section and got a good foothold last week, which continues to give Timothy guidelines for public worship, which is really what we're talking about in a section we've entitled Men and Women and Their Roles in Worship. I'd like you, if you would, turn to 1 Timothy 2. We're going to pick up at verse 8. And then immediately after that, I want to jump to Acts chapter 20. We don't always do that, but just be ready to go to Acts 20 verse 17. You can uh, go ahead and find that if you're using a hard copy, but easy to turn to if you're using a digital copy. But let's read together. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in, around you in the seats or read and study whatever one you memorize each week, and I'll give you verse cues and we'll stick together. Verse 8 starts this way, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Verse 10, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Verse 13, for it was Adam who was first created. Then Eve, verse 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Verse 15, but women will preserve, be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Stop right there. It's our desire to finish out chapter 2 today, so that's what we intend to do. Uh, we've been in this section for a little while now, and we'll continue in Guidelines for Public Worship as next week. Lord willing, we move into leadership in the church and some requirements for leadership. But look, if you were to Acts chapter 20 if you, and verse 17, if you're following along, which is very, very important, particularly today, and, and I don't always make you turn to different places. I try to put them on the screen for convenience sake, but sometimes it's very important to be in a sec different section and to make some notes and cross-references, and so um, be aware that I, I try to take in consideration flipping all around is a little distracting. But today, I want to, uh, this is instructive for us, I think, and I think you'll enjoy this reminder. So Luke is making a record of Paul's travels. We get to Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. We've looked at that numerous times in different uh, sections we've studied, so we understand a little bit about that timeline. And then in verse 17, it says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, so Here's the snapshot. He is on the coast. He wants to speak to the church elders from Ephesus who ask them to come and meet him. They do. And he says to them this, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you Everything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 22. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city 
saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify all of you solemnly the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on, your, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 31, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Stop right there. I think it's safe to say that as we read that warning and reminder, uh, the section is pretty instructive for the church in Ephesus and certainly for every church that has existed since that time. Paul is afraid that false teachers would arise within the church as well as come from the outside. And he knew that no matter how great the start of the church, no matter how effective his own three-year ministry in that city had been, or for that matter, any other pastor's effective ministry in any other church in any other place had been, it was inevitable that from time to time the church will be influenced by false teachers and in their influence, bring it down from a place of effectiveness in evangelism and discipleship and the Great Commission and the Great Commandment to a place of disorder and confusion and uselessness for God. And as we've seen in the letter so far, Paul's fears about the church in Ephesus were legitimate. That's precisely what occurred. And so when Paul was released from his first imprisonment in Rome, he met Timothy in Ephesus and likely saw some of the people he had previously spoken to six years before. You see, the Apostle Paul planned his life. He, des he desired to lay out a schedule, but he understood that the Lord may intervene. And so six years before he had said, you pray, perhaps will never see my face again. And yet, Paul comes back and he meets Timothy there. And upon meeting there, they found indeed that the church uh, where he had spent three years of a relatively brief earthly ministry had fallen into a place of disorder and confusion and ineffectiveness, and, and for this reason, uh, he has to come and send Timothy, and this, the reason for the fall were false teachers, and we've seen these things already from chapter 1. And just so that you remember, just as we work through this, as you see dif different instruction in, in these letters in Timothy, you realize that they're not there just by accident. Paul's not randomly talking about something. If he gives instruction, in particular worship and the conduct of worship, it's because it's incorrect. So Paul corrects the church, he does it directly and says, don't do this, or he'll give correct teaching about what's supposed to be going on. And so we see that then numerous places here. And before Paul leaves Timothy here in Ephesus, begin to set things right, he personally disciplined two of Ephesus' most prominent leaders, likely elders in the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander, apparently because they wouldn't stop teaching what was false and misleading the flock. So after leaving Timothy in Ephesus, Paul is instructed by Jesus to write to him and to the church, and the purpose of the writing is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, I'm writing these things 
to you, hoping to come to you before long. Now, let's just pause right there. Did Paul get back there again? He did not. He went into his second imprisonment, and from that one, he never came out. He was killed. And so, Paul, again, I desire to come to you. If he says, I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. So, Paul writes these letters, and he didn't get to come back. So, they are his letters to the church, authoritative and instructive both then and now. So, Paul says, I'm writing this to you so that believers will know how to behave in the church. And so, you can do what you need to do, Timothy, and pass on to the church what they need to hear. And further, be sure, Timothy, that you're going to have some opposition. So, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. So, in other words, you're going to have some resistance. You're going to have to defend sound doctrine. And there are many places where opposing arguments come up, but perhaps no more flagrantly than in the areas of gender and sexuality and the unique roles that God has set up for both. And that's what we begin to look at and what we began to look at last week. And it has been our habit in our verse-by-verse teaching, we were able to identify the important principles from Paul's instruction, those things that we have to come away with, things that Timothy would have understood and made sure that he taught. And last week, we identified five concerning the guidelines for public worship and the roles of men and women. And we started our transition uh, from verse 8, and that's some instruction for corporate prayer, and then it moves on to the roles of men and women. And so in verse 8, if you'd look there, if you would, it says, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And principle number one in guidelines for public worship concerning the roles of men and women, men are to do the praying. And this is just uh, the same word that the Bible reserves almost exclusively for actual males, 156 times in the New Testament just for a male. And then the phrase in every place just means in every corporate service setting, no matter what the church, no matter what the era, it's not limited to just here at Ephesus. And we looked closely at a number of passages that help us affirm that that is the case. If you missed any of that, I would encourage you to go back as it's part of the building blocks of an understanding of this passage in context. And the point is, when the church comes together, it's under the leadership of men, which is just obvious. So when the church meets, the men do the praying. And that's a very strong statement. Unadorned, just very simple, exactly what uh, the Lord has intended for the church to understand. Now look at the last part of verse 8. Paul says, therefore, I want every man in every place to pray. We understand that. Lifting up, he says, holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so that was uh, principle number two in guidelines for public worship for men and women. Men who are leading in this way or to have a lifestyle that's unstained, that's the idea, lifting up holy hands, unstained by the world, and not harboring anger or rebellion. That's the idea of wrath and dissension. So they can't be openly sinful or have an anger issue or be argumentative. So there are qualifications for leading a prayer in the church. And we saw that because those qualifications are there, some will be excluded. And the reason why Paul is saying it, it's likely that men are leading a worship in the church in Ephesus, and they're not qualified to do it, because they are disqualified both by the way they conduct their lives and how they talk. So, now let's look at verse 9, which begins Paul's instruction to women in the church. And we saw that this starts with the adverb, likewise, households just in the same way or in like manner. So, we understand from the language, Paul's not departing to a different topic. He's saying, we're talking about instruction for conduct in the church, and now we're going to talk about women. 
And he just, like the very direct requirements for the lifestyles of men, holiness and conduct without anger or rebellious talk. Our third principle, as it includes women and guidelines for public roles of men and women in the service, women also are to give careful attention to lifestyle. And that takes in really about two verses. And we could have been more specific there, but I think it, if we would have been, it would have hammered on some specific instructions, which then would have become taken on a life of their own. But basically he says this, and it's the idea of conduct. He says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, we made a number of comments last time. I encourage you to catch up if you missed that for clarity. But it was important to point out, Paul was not categorically forbidding women to style their hair or wear jewelry or nice clothing. In fact, he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And that adorn is a really beautiful word. It's cosmeo. It's the word. It's present active infinitive. Continue to adorn yourself, in other words, uh, to put in order, arrange, or make ready. The idea is the root of is the root of that is cosmos, where we get of the heavenly host. So the Lord says, in the same way the Lord decorates everything He's made, in this way He said, adorn yourself. And He says that women in the corporate meeting are to be uh, to adorn themselves. And then He says this with modesty. That's a sense of reverence. And then he says, and honor, discreetly it says, which literally, mean, literally means sobriety. Practically, it means a habitual inner self-government, which makes sense because um, sobriety is not governed by alcohol. You're not supposed to be governed by anything. And, and you know, Ephesians tells us that in Ephesians 5.8. There's a number of places where that's used. But just the idea then is just a, a habitual inner self-government. And then the context of the next part, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly garments. Now, we saw last time that in context, because there's a historical context here that's very important, uh, not mirroring, in other words, in adornment, the decadent, immoral Roman court, which is depicted in, in, in coins of the time. The idea is you're not modeling after what you're seeing then in this upper echelon of society in the church, not following a, after as a model the culture and how it dresses. Now, today's application, we said last time at length, would be the pulp culture around us. You're not supposed to let that be the model of what you're supposed to look like and do and act like. So ladies' dress is not to detract, really, from the gospel mission. It's, and so it's not legalism, and it's not plain and, and whatever. It's what we do, both men and women, is to enhance our carrying out of God's desire for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the overriding principle here in the message of the church. And so Paul is directing the Ephesian church to back to effectiveness, where prayers are offered for the lost, we've looked at all that, where lives are ordered, so to reach the lost, where the church ministry is conducted with the right people at the right times and at the right places. Now, instead of modeling a decadent culture, women are to adorn themselves with reverence and with soberness. And we looked at a number of passages that said the same thing, and I would encourage you to go back again because they're very important, but something, uh, passages from 1 Peter 3 and some others, marking the things that really bring attractiveness. And we also looked at a number of passages that are examples of godly women whose good work and character lived long after them. So it's not just in a vacuum. We get to see some examples. Godly women like Phoebe and Prisca and Mary from Romans 16 and Lydia from Acts 16 and Tabitha from Acts 9.36. Women who are known for, it says, abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which they continually did. Those things are then modeled in the Scripture recorded there forever for us to rejoice in what that's supposed to look like. So we don't want to let the culture set the demands for adornment and conduct, but it's just so hard to shake off. And so we said at the end of our time together 
We need to teach our young ladies early about modesty, about reverence, about godly conduct and deeds of kindness and love. Listen, their friends will not teach them this. If you're in a public school, you're not going to find this. You're not going to find this in your homeschool group, okay? You're going to have kids who are under the influence of the culture that's around them. You have to do intentional teaching to help your kid, your, your, your girl, your, your daughter to understand what real beauty is. Don't let your child model the promiscuous, decadent, rebellious, unrestrained culture in their clothing, in their behavior. Be aware of that tendency. Be, be aware of who your kids are listening to from music perspective. Teach your little girls about good works and gentleness and quietness. Don't teach them to be fierce and set her own standard and sassy and sarcastic and, and don't think it's awesome that, and tell her all the time she's drop-dead gorgeous. Listen, if you do that, our narcissistic society will make sure it cultivates all those fleshly impulses and, and will enforce them with thousands of selfies. So I think you can see that. And, and that's the opposite of what we want to cultivate. And so listen to the language. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. We looked at this last week. But let it be, what's, the, what's true beauty? Well, here it is. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable quality of gentle and quiet spirit, mark it, which is precious in the sight of God. It's not, it's not plainness. It's not ugliness. It's not no adornment. It's not saying you can't dress yourself up. It's not saying you can't look beautiful. Take care of yourself. You should, and you should adorn yourself. But the main things of beauty are the, are the, are the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's precious in the sight of God. Don't model the culture and attributes or conduct or dress like worldly women. Instead, as we saw in verse 10, lifestyle is the issue. In 1 Timothy 2.10, it says, but rather, not the culture, but rather by means of good works as a proper for women making a claim to godliness. If you claim Christianity, then this is what your life's going to look like, and you'll affirm that your claim is correct. If you claim Christianity, then this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God, will be the types of qualities that will be manifest in the lives of women. Now, look at verses 11 and 12. This is where we ended up last time. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And we saw this principle number four at the beginning of the passage in guidelines for public worship, women are to take on the attribute of a disciple. And that's not a bad thing, is it? We're all supposed to be disciples, are we not? We're all supposed to come under the instruction of the word and be uh, subject to it. But here it specifically says, women must receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So you understand that he's addressing the Ephesian church and the modern church because this is not what's going on. So Paul's not just saying this in a vacuum. So women are to take on the attributes of a disciple. And that's receive instruction, present active imperative. That's the verb manthano. It's related to the noun mathetes, which we use as disciple. So they are to be disciples. It is um, an imperative from Paul. She's to be a learner of the word. And then you see, again, in quietness, we see the words entire submissiveness. And again, quietness and submissiveness make their way into Paul's language as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, in the public corporate church meeting. Now look at verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach and exer or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And that's principle number five of guidelines for public worship. Women are not to do the teaching or have control or authority over the service. Noted last time that uh, that does not mean women can't pray. 
Is that the first thing that comes out? Well, you mean we can't pray? No, there's a time and a place when a woman ought to pray together with men. That's, that's not what it's saying here. It's saying inside the corporate meeting, the, the official meeting of the church, that's not to occur. It doesn't mean that women cannot teach the Word of God to children or other women. In fact, we're going to see later in Timothy and in Titus, that's precisely what they're supposed to do. And it doesn't mean that uh, they can't speak out for God with the gospel of Jesus Christ on every occasion the Lord provides for them. In fact, they should do that because everyone's supposed to be doing that. It doesn't mean they can't contribute to a Sunday school class or a Bible study or in a home fellowship meeting. It doesn't mean any of that. What it's saying is that in the duly constituted worship and service of the church, because that's the context here, what goes on in corporate worship, there is to be a clear line of distinction between the role of men and the role of women that God wants to establish as His pattern. And that is that men do the leading and the teaching and the praying and the preaching and women learn in silence with all subjection. And that's why, beloved, there are no women apostles in the New Testament. That's why there are no women prophets in the New Testament. There are no women pastors, no women teachers, no women evangelists, no women elders. No woman has ever written a book of the Bible. And that's not because they can't do it intellectually and spiritually. They certainly could have. This is an issue of role not spiritual inequality, as we saw last time. These are God's guidelines for public worship. So when Paul is carried along to write in verse 12, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, it has long-reaching authority. And we can start by looking at the verb forms. I do not allow, Paul says, is present active indicative. That is the attitude of reality. That's what's to go on. I don't allow a woman to teach, present active infinitive. There isn't an end to that. I don't allow a woman to exercise authority over a man, present active infinitive, to remain quiet, present active infinitive. Every verb has a continuing idea. They don't end. This is established patterns in the church. Obviously, there's a problem here in Ephesus. Women were filling roles they were not permitted to fill, and that's why Paul has to address it. And it's obviously still a problem today. Women who are discontent with their God-given role, and they seek to reach a place of prominence in teaching and taking authority over a man. That obviously means in the duly constituted church when it comes together in its official worship. So this has reference then to the authoritative pastor, teacher, elder role of the one who articulates the Word of God, the one who is responsible as an under-shepherd for the church to lead it and guide it. Now, we see lots of examples all, all the way through the New Testament, and I've just mentioned some of them to you, but there's an obvious one that's found in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, and it's not given as an example by the Apostle Paul here, but I think you can just kind of see this, and this is the pattern all throughout the New Testament, but the, he names five pastors functioning in that role in the church at Antioch. In verse 1, it says of chapter 13, it says, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who has been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So five of them, and they're all men. And this is a working example of a God-established role in the church. They aren't listed to prove the principle that Paul's stating here in 1 Timothy 2.12. This is just an illustration of the God-called, God-ordained, recognized pastor, teacher, elder, evangelist, who has authority in the church in matters of doctrine and interpretation. And there are no offices like this in the New Testament where a woman is functioning in this capacity. Now, the word exercise authority is important. And I told you today that I would go through some of the arguments that uh, some have for placing women in authority. And I'm going to give you some 
right now. And these are the ones that are most common. These are the ones that will be, you'll, be heard, you'll hear from a number of the prominent women teachers now uh, in, in the church as the reason why they can do what they can do. But this exercise authority over is a compound verb. Authenteo, uh, present, active, infinitive, that we just said. It's the idea of a continuing uh, understanding. And this is the idea of putting in a position of authority. Exercising that authority over a man in the church setting. Obviously, that's its context. It can't merely mean anything else. The KGV has the word usurp there. And, and although I get the understanding of why they put usurp, which is just to mean to displace a man and put yourself there would be usurping the in, and putting yourself in an incorrect position. But in today's vernacular, using usurp can be a misnomer because then some would say, as long as she doesn't usurp authority, but is placed there willingly, in other words, everyone's in agreement, and, and that's part of the exegetical gymnastics that's used to support an egalitarian approach to church ministry. You're kind of flipping it around. In other words, she can't take it to herself, but she can be given that position. And so, not only does that contradict verse 8, where men are to pray, so a woman can preach, but she can't pray in the church. Is that what it is? And that's just awkward. And then, of course, it contradicts verse 11, where she has to be in silence and submission under men. So, it can't mean that. Okay, because if you cut it out right there, it doesn't fit anywhere else. And sometimes it's creatively and, again, incorrectly interpreted as abusive authority. So, in other words, when she leads the church, she can't domineer a man. And so, the problem with that is the word has nothing to do with domineering authority. And, in fact, if he was talking about domineering authority, he wouldn't just be talking about women, would he? He would have to talk about men, too, because it would be just as much of a sin for men to have domineering authority as it would for women. First Peter chapter 5 is a perfect example of that, not lording it over the flock, but being as an example to them in, in service. So the idea there, then, is, again, uh, contrary to sound doctrine and a clear understanding. The word is to take authority, period. It's better understanding as any position of authority inside the duly constituted meetings in the, in the local church. And not only is that supported by verses 8 and 11, that goes perfectly with them, it's also supported by 1 Corinthians 14, which we looked at last week. And it's confirmed by church history. And it's confirmed by what we see in the New Testament. And we'll also see that supported in verses 13 and 14. But back to verse 11, look back there in your copy of God's Word. It says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So the guidelines presented here in verses 11 and verse 12 work together. Here's the idea. Her quietness is the quietness of what? Not being the teacher, see? And her submissiveness is the submissiveness of not being in authority. She is a learner and a disciple. She's not to have authority. She's not to be a teacher. She's not to be a ruler in the church. Having authority over men in the church would violate all the other positive affirmations that, and guidelines that go with a lady's role. And again, as a footnote, these principles don't mean that women don't have the speaking gifts. They do. And it doesn't mean that women don't have leadership gifts. They do. These are just guidelines on where they can use them. And I think you can see that. Now, the support here in this letter, as we've seen in other letters, comes then right after these instructions, which is precisely how Paul does it everywhere and how Peter did it as well. He gives instructions and says, this is why this is the case. Now, this is a very interesting way to do this, and I think that this just makes this, uh, you just can't wiggle out of this. Once you get the understanding of why Paul has done what he's done, it has to be the reason and the, and the exact meaning that we, we understand. Now, look at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Timothy 2, if you would. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Verse 14, 
And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Let's stop right there. Now, start at verse 13. Let's back up. Pick up our principle. It says, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And here's our principle. Number six, in guidelines for public worship, the complementarian role of women in the church is based on God's, what? Order in creation. So the very chronological order of creation proves that Eve was not intended to have authority over Adam. Paul's using it as an illustration for order inside the church. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Verse 9, indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And we understand that process, and we're going to look at it again in Genesis 2, about how exactly the Lord created everybody. But man is the generic head of the human race, and that's just so clear. And woman's place was ordained in, or in the order of creation. Adam was made first, and then woman. And that's why she ought to recognize then, this is Paul's understanding and his teaching, his authority inside the church, which is the reason for the illustration to begin with, and inside the family. To understand that created order. And acknowledgement of this fact is a significant failing of feminism and the feminism movement, because... Uh, it has given way to egalitarianism, which really cannot come to grips with the unique creation of man as male and female. And so the supporters of egalitarianism assert that there's no legitimate difference between men and women in the home and in the church. And I think you understand that. Feminism says that too. At least not one that allows for male spiritual leadership. And so feminism expressed through egalitarianism devalues then God's creation and his design and his redemptive calling for women. And it fails to acknowledge in a correct manner the distinctions between men and women, expressed even more absurdly now that I can be whatever gender I want to be and whatever role I want to fill. So you can see how ridiculous the first movement was, which there's no legitimate difference between men and women, and then women can do anything men can do, which is false. And then we move on into just absurdity, which is I can be whatever gender I want to be. I can be a man and I can get pregnant. And so the whole thing now is not even connected to reality, but you can see the first step, which is to just reject the clear teaching of the created order between men and women and how God has ordained that to be the example. And so any required acknowledgement then of male leadership is going to be chalked up to inequality or misogynism. Right? Now we just call names. We don't even make an argument anymore. We're just like, well, this is how you are. And, and this attitude exists in part, and I, I think this is very, very clear, because of a lack of modern-day clear exegetical expository teaching based in historical, grammatical, cultural context in the church. And I say that anecdotally because many comments from last week where we just barely got our foot, feet wet of people who came up and said, I have never heard that passage taught like that. Well, that's not, that's no accusation on you or no incrimination on you. It's just that that affirms to me that in, in the different varying ages of the people who said that, and they've never heard this teaching, this is the problem because nobody's teaching about it. And I told you, honestly, that if I wasn't an exegetical expository teacher, I wouldn't be in the pastorate, but if I wasn't that, then I wouldn't pick this as a passage I would teach because I can pretty much guarantee I'll offend 50% of the people in the room as soon as I do it. Because it's just so opposite of what we're used to hearing in the culture. We've accepted a lot of it. We don't even realize that we have. But here is the clear teaching. And so, to avoid ineffectiveness and open rebellion, Paul had to teach this to the Ephesians. And 
we still have to teach it now. Now, Paul says in creation, God made man first, and man was made for God, and, God, and woman was made for man. Eve was made for Adam. She was made to be his helper. Genesis chapter 2, look there if you would, and I'd like you to just go ahead and flip to it. It's the last time we're going to flip to any other passage. Genesis 2, go to the front of your Bible, two chapters in, you're there. Pretty easy to find. It's just so clear. So, the Lord explains his whole reasoning behind the created order. He explains exactly what he does, and this is what Paul is calling on. He's calling on some common knowledge in the church. It, he says this to them. Of course, it's not even common knowledge in the culture at all now. If you talk about creation and created order and young earth and all that, you just looked at it like you're some kind of moron. But you understand the undermining that's going on there, see? It's not because that's not a legitimate way to understand how creation occurred and how everything is here. Okay? In fact, it takes a lot less faith to believe the Lord created everything than everything created itself. Okay? I was reading an article even this morning. Uh, I think you saw it maybe on the Daily Wire where uh, they were talking about uh, a couple of new galaxies that were found that were billions of light years away, and they were created 338 billion years ago. Well, no matter how far back you got, you go, folks, you still have to same this, okay? All right? And I, I, as I witnessed to one engineer one time, and I led him to faith, he is a software engineer uh, for flash drives, and I just said to him, I said, um, so I said well, obviously, you believe in creation, right? Because you're a software engineer. And he's like, no, I believe in evolution. I said, oh, what, what do you do? Yeah, I'm a software writer for flash drives. I go, okay, so is it possible that um, we could find a flash drive in the forest that made itself? No. What if I gave you a million years? Could you find a flash drive in the forest that had made itself? No. Why? Because it has to be designed. It's complex. Oh, okay. Well, let me tell you something else that's pretty complex too. See, this is important. It's an undermining of the authority of Scripture. We're talking about that in just a minute. And when you undermine the authority of Scripture, you can't go back now in the culture and say, well, remember Adam and Eve, they were created, and God had an order in that creation. You don't even have that as a reference point. But the church certainly should, right? We shouldn't be saying, what, Adam and Eve? That, well, that's, not, that's, a, that's a fairy tale. Okay, when you're there, you're, you're in a you're very slippery slope. Now everything can go, and we'll see this in just a minute. But so... This is, this is God's understanding. This is how it happened. It, he tells us how it happened. Moses writes this out for us. Genesis chapter 2 is just so clear. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, verse 19, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. That'd be a pretty fun job. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to have been there for anything else. I think that would be pretty cool, right? The Lord's creating these cool things, and they walk up, and you're like, okay, elephant, you know, whatever, you know, hippopotamus, um, you know, all the dinosaur names, all that. Verse 20, the man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. For Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And I think the Lord had his intents and all that, doesn't he? He brought everything he created, and Adam realized there's no, no, there's no suitable companion. And dogs are nice, but, you know, it's not a, it's not a woman. So the Lord knew this. Verse 28, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned, verse 22, into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to him. That's so amazing. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man Verse 24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. She is his glory. She 
Man is the glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. She's made to be his helper. She is to follow his lead, live in his provision, find safety in his strength, protection in his courage. And mark this, a tendency to follow was built into Eve until the fall, and then came the curse, and in that curse, the tendency to rule, and then conflict. So we can kind of understand how that works. And as we pointed out from multiple places in the New Testament, this is not a cultural issue, okay? This is not just isolated to some Pauline prejudice, because that's what gets said. Well, this is just Paul's sin issue. He just had a problem with girls, right? This is Genesis, okay? Paul goes way back past whatever opinion somebody may have, whatever they may think about him. He goes past his own authority in the church, which is substantial. He goes back to Genesis. This is creation. This is God's design. This isn't temporary. This isn't first century only. This is the design God has initially created. And then verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell, it says, into transgression. So our seventh principle of guidelines for public worship, the complementarian role of women in the church is based on her deception in the fall. Paul's point here as he illustrates God's guidelines for church leadership is that Eve was deceived in the matter of doctrine. She was deceived and convinced that she really didn't know before, but now she knew. That's the whole point of being deceived, see? And that's what we talked about in 2 Corinthians. Do you remember Paul says, I, I was worried that you let you, lest you had been deceived like Eve. What's that mean? It doesn't mean open rebellion against God. It means that you listened to another opinion and decided you didn't really know before, but now you do. That's deception. See, you're, you're not, that's not open rebellion. It's like you think you knew, but now you, you really know. And so it's recorded for us as a passage that lets us know um, what, how that went. It's referring to uh, Galatia, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, and this is what Paul is talking about. And he says, the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat from this tree, in your, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, she took and ate and then she superseded authority over Adam and said to him, you eat. That's the issue. Okay? So, he had full knowledge, of course, of the act, and in his rebellion, uh, subordinated himself to her and her leadership and ate the fruit, and because he wanted to, and probably because he didn't want to lose Eve, there are a number of things that uh, moved him into a sinful area, and because of that, he is uh, the head of the headship of sin passed down through his own rebellion. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, we see, and we looked at this extensively in our study of Romans but so even though one trans, uh, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The fall is Adam's fault. It lands on Adam. He knowingly and willingly rebelled against the Lord, and that is the start of the sin relationship and brought the curse on all mankind. But Eve was the one who was deceived and moved out from under Adam's leadership, and then came and said, you eat too. And so, that's Paul's point of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. And this complementarian position of women in the church is based on God's order in creation and the order of the fall. Two separate occurrences, things that confirm the order he's trying to put forward. Both men and women violated their positions. Uh, Paul didn't make this up, and it continues to have impact even today. 
And then in verse 15, and this is one we've looked at before, it says this in verse 15, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And this is our eighth principle and the last one for today for public worship. An important role of women in the church will include, as we've talked about before, their work with children, modeling godliness, and raising them to godliness. And so a very important role. And what is she preserved from? So the language is kind of inflammatory, isn't it? Well, I I mean, it could be conceived that way unless you understand God's created order and understand what happened. She's preserved from some kind of dishonor she would perhaps have to bear because she was deceived. Or she is, is, is preserved from some kind of Uh, dishonor she might think she has because she was created second as a helper to Adam. All these kinds of things might bring something in, a cloud of something in the mind, and perhaps uh, cause people to think uh, badly. In Genesis, we read that Eve led mankind into sin, but the stigma that women bear can be reversed, and that's the point of the passage that's most important. What happened in the past is history. That's how it occurred. It's the reason for the leadership in the church. But what can happen in the future is marvelous. The part she plays in raising another God generation is one of, mark it, the most important role she fulfills in the church and in the world. The most important role she can fill, and no one else can fill it. She has been picked by the Lord to do it. So let's harmonize it with everything we've seen so far. It says this, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint, So, first of all, it certainly refers to her, because we just got through talking about all those things, did we not? Her faith in the Lord, her sincere love for God, her holiness and purity of life, her modest self-control, mark her spiritual state as such, who will bring forth children who will become a new generation of believers. The Lord doesn't allow everyone to have children, some He intentionally uh, keeps from having children, but when He allows Him to have them, they're to be doing some things with them. And if you weren't allowed to have children, then you still have an influence on children that are around you, so you can certainly fulfill this. But they're going to bring forth children who will become, mark it, a new generation of believers. So her modest self-control and her spiritual state and her... her, uh, be reigning in her life and all the things we just got through talking about are going to bring forth an opportunity to reverse the curse. All these things Paul mentions are the very problems he's dealing with in the Ephesians church, Ephesus church. And this is the same problem we have now. Women living out the curse, women wanting to rule, embracing egalitarianism, embracing career, thinking it's more important to go do things than raise godly children, struggling off and shrugging off modesty and reverence and embracing a culture as a model for dress and behavior, encouraging their daughters to be independent and fierce and sarcastic instead of gentle and quiet. See, that's what brought about the curse to begin with. Instead, Paul says, as she brought forth once a curse, she now brings forth a blessing. See, what, a, what an opportunity that is. That's her calling. Guiding the church is not her job. And when a woman raises a godly generation of children, the whole act begins to be reversed. You see, when women follow God's divine plan for them, and she raises godly children, she reverses the effects of the curse one child at a time. So we've already talked about her when she continues in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. But I think that they takes in both. And so it's the children too. And it's this godliness and virtue and modesty and reverence of the lifestyle of the women and in the church that will have the greatest impact on the young life in this next generation. And and that attention to lifestyle was Paul's main focus throughout all these eight verses, wasn't it? Both to men and to women. And that lifestyle and that pattern of behavior can create this. 
And listen, you know, men can foul this up too. There's instruction for women, women about raising children, and men can mess this up. If he's messing up how he's supposed to love his wife, if he's not washing her with his words, if he's too involved with his career. And as I told you before, men can teach a lot of things to their kids, and none of them will be godliness, and you'll produce exactly that, ungodliness. And women can do the same thing. They can be really involved with a bunch of other things and, and child, children are just kind of a, a side issue instead of the main issue, see? And you can raise this child up and not produce a godly kid. They don't continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And then now you've got older kids that have rejected the gospel. What can you do? Now you've got to call on the Lord and ask for His mercy. Because this is the instruction and this is the way we're supposed to go. And the core of this is a fundamental issue of biblical authority. Will we let the God, God's Word speak and rule over our lives? That's the issue, isn't it? It's like I talked about before. You're undermining the creation and all that, and now you don't have that anymore, so it's not an illustration anymore. And now it's just survival of the fittest or the luckiest or whatever you want to call it. And, and so now we don't really have meaning, and now we're just embracing a big lie, which is my life has meaning and what I do has meaning. But it doesn't if you're just some blip on the cosmic map in some time between 300 million years and now. Or like I read today, 300 billion years. They keep adding time somehow. Maybe that's going to impact what happens now. It hasn't changed anything. But here's the dis- here, this is the issue. If we deny the biblical teaching about manhood and womanhood, which is all through, by the way, these letters in Timothy and Titus. So you're going to see this over and over again. And the complementarian ways men and women are to conduct themselves in the church, in child rearing, in the culture, then effectiveness of the church is lost. It's the whole point of Paul's addressing Ephesus now. They've lost their effectiveness. They're off base. They've got people who are teaching incorrect things. They even had to put two elders out because they wouldn't stop. So here's the issue. If the church can read these passages we just looked at, get this, and rest out of that egalitarianism, after what we just read, and as clear as it is, if they read that and say, no, it's, it's egalitarianism. We, women can do it because they're gifted and, and it's a blessing to the church and whatever. If they can rest egalitarianism out of those passages, then we can rest anything out of the Bible we want. Because now we're in a really slippery area, okay? If the Bible does, isn't anchored to what it says in context and grammar and history and all of that, then we're messed up. If this is just Paul's sin issue, man, all the rest of the stuff then gets thrown into question. So it's really an issue of biblical authority. And I know that this falls hard on your ears. It's hard for me to say. And we're so conditioned to the culture now that when we read stuff like this, as a woman, I can just imagine, it may grind on you. Because we are so conditioned to what we, the culture has presented to us as appropriate, and we've lost the biblical authority. And I, for that, I'm sorry. I don't mean to, to grind on anybody. And, and I would say, as I said to first service, we have a lot of godly women here. And they're not chafing against this at all. And I'm very grateful for that. And we have a lot of, and they're, they're doing it under the radar. And they're raising, raising godly children, and they're teaching them modesty and gentleness and all that. It's just lovely. And, and we've got men who are loving their wives, and they're not doing it out in the open, not up on the stage, you know, hey, I'm loving my wife like Christ of the church, and I'm washing her with my words. But they are, and they're disciplining their children, and they're making them, uh, and, and then occur, encouraging them when they mess up and all that. They're doing that, see? And so I don't think because I'm teaching through this that I think something's wrong here. I don't. Okay? I'm teaching through it because this is where we are, and if I skipped over, it would be kind of obvious. And then you're like, what's he doing? What a hack. So here it is. So I don't mean to, I'm not meaning to chafe the church. I don't think that we have a problem. Maybe it's just prophylactic, but maybe there is an issue. Maybe when somebody listens to it, it will be an issue for them, and they can dig in, and they can be restored to where they can be effective. 
But if you, if you can rest egalitarianism from this, you can make the Scripture say whatever you want. And today, the primary issues in which Christianity is pressured by the culture to conform are the issues of gender and sexuality, and not just to put up with it. The culture wants us to affirm all of those positions as legitimate, equal positions. And we just cannot do that. We're going to be offensive. It has to be, I'm sorry, that isn't correct. It's not only is it not even logical, it's not biblical either. And it should never be in the church, but it's all over in the church, okay? It's all over. But I think it really throws a big question at a spotlight on Titus, and, and I'm going to read this to you, and you can look it up if you want, Titus 2, 1 through 5. We'll be here soon enough, but it's just a few pages forward from where you are in First Timothy. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. So Titus is another son in, in, in the faith to Paul. And he's saying much the same thing, and you're going to hear much of the same language. And then the last sentence is the one I want to draw attention to. But he says, verse 1, but as for you, talking to Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Don't be afraid. Okay, I'm going to give you the instruction. It's not going to line up with the culture. The church is not going to like it in Crete, and you're going to have to say it. And like you told Timothy, defend it, you know, all that. Then he says this, and listen, this is so cool. Older men are to be temperate dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. So he's going to get on him, and we're going to look at that. What does that mean? Uh, if, you're, if you're going to be a man who's godly, these things have to be in your life, and we're going, to, we're going to dig right into that. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, reverent, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what's good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Mark this, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You see that? Why do we do all of it? So we show that we're obedient to what the word of God says. You get it? We do it for its own benefit, for sure. I mean, if, if, you're, a, if you're a woman and you spend most of your time in church gossiping, guess what? You're not going to produce godly young ladies under you. And if you're a woman who spent their time gossiping, what do you have to teach the young ladies? If your kids didn't grow up to walk with the Lord as an older woman, you don't have anything you can teach our younger ladies, okay? So everything depends on a biblical authority and bringing yourself up under this and then moving forward and being used later to teach. What do you teach? Teach our young women to be husband lovers, to be children lovers, to be sensible, pure, keepers of the home, kind, subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Beloved, progressive Christianity, much of the Protestant faith, certainly the pagan landscape of the unredeemed, care nothing about doctrinal truth. All of those passages just seem to be archaic and irrelevant. And if we don't follow them, we just put up as if in lights that Scripture's inherent teaching about manhood and womanhood, which is really at the base of everything, Render it untrustworthy for the Christian life. Do you get that? If we can't even believe the basic structure God has set up, and we don't practice that, and we don't believe it, then we really have, we have made it untrustworthy for the Christian life. Well, if we can't believe it for that, why would we believe it for anything else? How archaic and stupid are all those rules anyway? So out of touch with culture. And we certainly don't want to be there, do we? I mean, the world needs men and women who will pray for the lost and the church and live exemplary lives and conform to God's standard for conduct and raise up another generation of godly children. That's what the church needs. And, and the Bible is just so clear about it. And nothing that we've read is complex. 
It's very, very straightforward. It has great illustrations that connect back to why these things are like that. And every passage in the New Testament that teaches these kind of things connects it. In 1 Corinthians, we see in verse 11, it's because of the angels. Well, that's not local, is it? I mean, if the angels have a problem with what's going on there in the male-female relationship, they still have a problem with it, right? That hasn't changed. And so, again, we just have, and the language, all the verb forms are all continuous, right? They're all infinitive, most of them. So, it's, it's an important principle, one that is hard to teach, but one that I hope has been beneficial to you, one that has caused you to think uh, and reevaluate what's important. You know, and I know that as a woman, it's kind of on you right now because that's where the passage is, but we're getting ready to go to leadership in just a minute in the church, which is all men in chapter 3. But, you know, I understand that you're busy. You have a lot of things. If you're a Proverbs 31 woman, not only are you raising godly children and teaching your daughters to be, to be kind and humble and workers at home and, and you're teaching them to be modest and, and sober and all that, um, you're also bringing money in and, you know, that's what Proverbs 31 women do. Uh, they're working and they're, they're about stuff, but they're child lovers, they're husband lovers, they're keepers of the home too. It's a, it's a big task, right? And so I think these kinds of passages help to reset us, remind us what's most important, make sure, you know, the cares of the world and those kinds of things don't overbear on us so that we shift our focus away from the things that really matter. And certainly as it, as it deals with, with uh, life inside the church, we can really see how many of these, past, many of these churches now, days which have um, ordained women, have women as, as worship leaders, uh, women who are prayer leaders in the church itself, pastors, elders, whatever. They've just completely moved away from all that. And, and I would just tell you, if you're, if you're watching someone, you're streaming a service online, and that is the case, you've got people in those positions, don't watch it anymore, because I'll tell you something, if you can wrest egalitarianism out of those passages, you've messed a ton of other documents, doctrine statements up too, okay? And that always is the case when people ask me, hey, can you check this church out? And then I see what's going on, you know, see who's up there leading or whatever in the middle of the church service. And then I, listen, I know what's coming in the sermon. It doesn't take, it's, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. I mean, you're going you're gonna to be messing it up right and left. You're just playing loose and fast with the Word of God. You're not really worried about it because you've already violated some of the most basic principles set up for the conduct of the church. So that's where we are. And uh, my desire really is just to commend you because the church, this church is like that, and I'm so grateful. Um, so don't think I'm pulling this out to uh, and somehow uh, make a point. I'm not. I'm just teaching it so that you would know it. And it's prophylactic, no doubt. Um, but, but even that can help you help others. And so may that be the case. Let's pray if you would. Lord, we thank you today for the wonderful time together for both services, the joy it is to be in fellowship with the saints, uh, the worship and music and the prayer time and um, the time in your word and the giving, all, all these things which just, um, just connect us in just a consistent stream all the way back to the first church. And in with the first church, we know, Father, that there were problems and there were struggles and the curse was being uh, acted on and acted out. And Father, we, we, we want to move away from all of that. We're not talking about the home now, but certainly you have ordained the husband to be a spiritual head and the leader, but he is a serving leader. I pray that'll be the case with our men. Self-sacrificing, which means that some of the things you wanted to do, you won't be able to do, and you're going to not do them because you love your wife and you want to help her and do things for her. And you're going to wash her with your words. You're not bringing every filthy thing home from work and from the world and telling it to your wife. You're washing her with your words, making her more lovely, more radiant, more glorious, just like your son does to the church, Lord. And so, Father, I thank you for, I think, 
a pretty easy way to grasp this, and the illustrations are pretty clear. And so, Lord, just remind us as we do the things we do, be reset to these things. And Father, I thank you too, as, as uh, Jacob prayed earlier, for, we want to pray for all men everywhere, all those in authority, leaders. Father, we, we certainly have people close to us that aren't born again, and we want to be people who are, meant, who are giving the gospel out. We don't want to go uh, weeks and months and years and never give the gospel. It doesn't, it doesn't conform with what we understand as our mandate. And so, Father, I pray we'll be about that. But not just that, but far from us, Father, people who rule in other nations, North Korea and and uh, Sudan and in you know Brazil and and even in our own country, Father, I pray that the gospel will go forth there. That people who are maybe in advisors' positions or maybe a, a broadcast somewhere will make its way to the hearts of of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and and uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and many of the ungodly men and women who who uh, promote ungodly activities and laws in our nation, and, and that you'll bring salvation to them and a change so we can dwell in peace. Uh, and tranquility, and be able to do the job the church has uh, desired to do and wants to do and has been given to do. And Father, we pray for uh, the gospel to go out in power both with us and with uh, opportunities that others will have, that the world can be changed, that peace can be part of uh, the process. And Father, I thank you too for an opportunity to pray for our own church and for the church at large that um, the, the uh, word of God will not be dishonored by uh, neglecting of clear teaching, not justifying whatever they want to do, but instead be brought into subjection to that, that the church uh, will um, be godly with integrity, a vertical relationship with, with the church that calls on your name, and you will be correct because we're doing what you say, and the horizontal relationship we're not giving offense except in ways where there's doctrine that doesn't move and then we just speak it with love. And so, Father, I pray we'll be a church like that. Certainly, we want to be that way. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. And we want to be a part of it. And we want to do it. And so, Father, help us to do those things. And we pray all this in the name of your Son. And we're so grateful that we have a relationship with him through his death and resurrection. And, Father, I pray... Um, for his own glory, that we do the things we do. He is the head of all things the church. For the fact that he's coming back soon, we long for, for him to set things right. But in the meantime, Father, help us to have a great soul harvest as we pray in the way that you've instructed us to. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.